so one of the things that's really got me charged up is that I want to let more people know that they can do this. And so that was one of the reasons for starting the podcast, launching a website, and I just want to get out there and let more people know. And then I want to partner with great people that you know, are patient, that don't have to do deals, but are focused on building wealth. And that I feel like not only am I investing in that deal, but I can help bring other people along and help them invest and grow their wealth also. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Right, so today I'm speaking with Darren Batchelder, and he has a fascinating, you know, insight to share with us today. A little bit of a background about Darren. He founded a company back in 2007 that focuses on trading loans, and he has traded in excess of you know over four billion dollars in loans. But currently, he's actually in multifamily, just like me. He owns over four thousand multifamily units. And another fun fact is that Darren is a CPA and he's a graduate of University of Rhode Island. And initially he started his career with Pricewaterhouse and with PepsiCo. So he has a very interesting, diverse background. And I want to, you know, welcome him to the show. Hey, Darren. Hey, Ellie. I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fun because we just recorded a podcast episode on his show where I was the guest. So now we're, we're switching. And she was super, by the way. I'm sure, I'm sure all the <laughs> listeners already know that, but she was fantastic. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward, you know, to our conversation. You know, there's so many things that we multifamily owners can share and talk about, you know, during COVID. But I, maybe we can start with kind of talking a little bit about your main focus in the past year and now during COVID. And the reason why I'm kind of asking about the past year is because we were right before COVID, we were at what seemed to be the height of the market. And, you know, I know, and we talked about it also in the episode we just recorded that people said, it's the top of the market, don't buy anything. Right. Now, it's very polarizing. Now we're on the opposite, you know, end of that spectrum seems like. So can you talk to me a little bit about your focus prior to COVID and if anything has changed since then? Absolutely. So I had goals set up for 2020 that I was going to syndicate, be a lead syndicator on one 100 plus unit deal. I was going to partner with other experienced syndicators as a GP and be a more of a minority partner two large transactions, and then I was going to start a podcast. So go back to February, I was locked and loaded on a 210 unit deal about an hour south of Dallas. Dallas is a very 
very competitive on the multifamily front. And this was a deal that after looking at a lot of deals, you know, it was cash flowing well and it, it was very attractive to me. And so I went hard at it and I thought we were going to win the deal and we ended up coming runner up. So after that deal, I kind of looked up to the big man upstairs and was like, all right, what's next? Do I just go after the next one? Or, and you know, he kind of put in my mind, well, what about the podcast thing? So I looked online, found a podcast conference down in South Florida and well in Orlando that was going on the next week. And I actually got on a plane and went out and I kind of pivoted at that point to, okay, instead of going after the next deal, I'm going to start the podcast now instead of doing it later in the year. And that actually helped me because COVID happened a few weeks later and then I was stuck at home and it was a great time to launch a podcast and launch a website. And so my focus kind of shifted. It was a goal for 2020, but I wasn't planning on doing it until the end. And I kind of just shifted. That's interesting. And I think, you know, one thing that you said was that you were on a certain path and then something happened and you pivoted and you said, you know what, I'm going to focus on my podcast. I think, you know, many people find it hard to pivot if they're kind of stuck, quote unquote, in a certain path and they say, I need to do it. But, you know, things and circumstances change, you know, around us all the time. So how do you kind of find, you know, the balance between pivoting, but still staying focused and not losing sight of what you want to do? Because I think completely changing your course of action or your strategy or your main focus is also not good because then you're going to just jump from one venture to another and not really, you know, be successful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it was part of my goals. It just, the timing kind of shifted. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when COVID happened, what I saw was, you know, the multifamily market kind of went on hold for like two months. There, nothing was really trading. Mm -hmm. And then when it opened back up, I was ready to get involved and start buying deals again. But when I started seeing the pricing, most of the deals were being priced like they were pre-COVID. And I felt like, you know, the world is different now. And mm -hmm. cash flows are more unpredictable. And what's going to happen after stimulus ends is more unpredictable. So, you know, it's not the same deal as it was pre-COVID. So a lot of the deals just didn't make sense to me. I continued to look at them, but didn't make sense. But, you know, I had the two-prong approach where I was looking for deals on my own, but I was also developing relationships with, you know, more senior guys in the industry that are still getting deals, but I'm not in a race. There are some syndicators that are in a race to get five or six deals so that they can, you know, get enough income that they can quit their W-2 job. I have another business that brings me positive cash flow. So for me, I want to get involved with the right deals and with the right partners. So just recently, actually over the last two days, I was down, drove down to Houston and I'm partnering with two guys that it's actually six of us all together, but two of the guys that I've known for a long time, for the last two, three years, that I highly respect, they don't need another deal. Like It's just a deal that makes sense. And what's important to me is that it has cushion. So if we get into 2021 and there's a hiccup in the economy, mm -hmm. it's a deal that can withhold that. You know, It's not priced to perfection. 
Yeah, I love what you said. And I think it's so important that you don't need to close deals or do X amount of deals every year to survive, to pay the bills. You have other sources of income. So you you basically have the ability to choose, you know, and if you choose to wait for six months, for a year, for whatever it is, until you find the right deal, that I think makes all the difference in the world. And I think, you know, a lot of our fellow syndicators, everyone is showing a deal and say, this is a great deal. This is a conservative deal. They always say it's conservative. Right. Every, every deal is, right? Yeah, exactly. Not every deal is conservative. Just looking through the numbers. But I think what you said is so important in, you know, having other sources of income and being in that position that you can choose which deal to take and which deal to pass yeah, on. Yeah, I'm, I'm very it's fortunate. It's only about that. Mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate from that standpoint. And this is a relationship business. I mean, you've been in the business longer than I have. And, you know, you see that, okay, the performance on one deal, you know, passive investors, they talk to other passive investors. And if you do right by them and get them in a deal that they make money, then they want to continue to invest with you. So I'm in this for the long game. And so, you know, I want to make sure that I pick the right partners and the right deals. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you pick the right partner? What do you do to make sure that, you know, that you feel comfortable with someone? You say, hey, I want to do business with this person. Yeah. So, you know, one is networking, you know, getting out Mm -hmm. and meeting, meeting people and getting to know them and watching them and talking to them and just getting to like the people that I'm partnering with on this deal. One, I know their financial net worth and they don't need to do another deal. In addition to that, I've also seen them be very patient in the deals that they pick. And even though I wasn't involved with those deals, I was watching and I was like, look, they've passed on a lot of deals and now they're coming out with this one and this one's really attractive. And they've surrounded themselves with other great people. So this week when we went out to do due diligence on the deal, you know, it wasn't just the GP partnership group, but also, you know, I met the lender and I met the property management company that's coming on and I met the rehab, you know, people and they've got a great team put together. So that gives me a lot of confidence. Also investing in markets that are just attractive markets. You know, I don't know what's going to happen six months or a year from now, but you know, 10 years from now, Houston's supposed to have another million people living in Houston. So look, as long as there's cushion to ride it out to get to the other side of a downturn, I feel very confident in the Texas market. What do you mean by as long as there's cushion? How can you make sure that there's enough cushion in a deal? So, you know, the lenders will typically require a debt service coverage ratio of, of 125. So, you know, for listeners that don't understand that, it basically just means, you know, you got your rental income, less your expenses. And then after that, you pay the mortgage and there's 25% cushion. Okay. Well, this deal that we're getting involved in is, you know, going in has a DCR of over two. So there's a lot of cushion. So if all of a sudden the market goes down, one, we could put the rehab on hold. And two, 
the existing cash flow has significant cushion, then if it goes down, we're still fine from debt service perspective. Yeah. And that's really, really important. You know, I know that some investors during COVID decided to not invest and just wait and see what happens. And I actually saw that the more experienced investors and the wealthier investors are still investing because they've been through one or two cycles and they have also enough that they're okay if things are not going to go as well 100% of the time. And a great point, a great question. Experiencing, Yeah. Are you experiencing the same thing? You know, when I, I feel like there will be a hiccup, you know, everybody has a difference of opinion. I hope I'm wrong, but you know, I'm not really buying the V recovery Mm -hmm. and it's just going to be smooth sailing. I believe we'll have another stimulus package It'll kick the can down the road for a bit. And eventually, you know, these companies that have laid off people, put people on furlough, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of multinational corporations, people that work for multinationals, that they're not going to be taking back all those people that were furloughed. And if, you know, those people stay permanently unemployed, they're going to have a hard time paying their mortgage, you know, or their rent or whatever. And so I think the economy will have a hiccup at some point. But what I don't know is when that will be. Right. I don't know if that's going to be six months from now or two years from now or four years from now. So I'm going to continue to invest because, you know, again, I think Houston's going to have another million people move in within the next 10 years. Well, as long as we could ride through that downturn whenever it comes, I know that if you have more and more people moving into an area, that's more and more competition for rent for single family houses, for jobs, et cetera. So it bodes well for the multifamily industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think, you know, what's the opportunity cost of not investing right now? And what's the real risk of investing? So I think it's very unlikely or very extreme that you're going to lose your investment. I think a more of a reasonable risk is that if you're investing in a deal that is projected to you know, pay you 7% cash on cash every year, that you're going to make six or five. It's still much better than keeping your money in the bank or, you know, any other short-term investment that will pay you a quarter of a percent, nothing. And you're losing at least five to 6%. That's how I see it. Because it's not, you know, whether I feel comfortable investing because I know that I'm going to get those 7% cash on cash or eight or whatever it is, it's basically, I'm okay if I'm going to, even if I'm going to make 5% and miss, you know, the projections, I'm still going to make a lot more than what I'm making right now. I think for me, that's how I, I look at it. And I invest in all my deals. I also invest in other syndicators deals because I want to diversify and just keeping my money in the bank. I'm actually losing money this way. There's a huge opportunity cost there. That's a great point. But you have a different mindset. You know, we talked about that on the other show. I mean, a lot of people are more focused on, I don't want something negative to happen to me Mm -hmm. than I want something positive to happen to me, right? And so, yeah, I'm passively invested in like eight other deals with other syndicators as well. So, and I'm, I'm okay if not only if they drop, my distributions, but if even if you have to cut them off, just keep the property, you know, ride it out to the other side. Because, you know, if you look to the medium to long term, 
you know, real estate prices are always going up. And, you know, with inflation, rents will always go up, but there could be periods that are not so attractive. So, you know, people who invested with me that weren't in the multifamily world and knew that I've been in loan trading for years and years were like, hey, Darren, what's the biggest risk in, in a deal like this? You know, I trust you and I, you know, I trust you're getting involved in a deal that you're, you're excited about and that you, is going to be worthwhile. But if I was to come along, what's the biggest risk? And for me, coming from the loan training side where I saw people get hurt is when the loan comes due in a terrible economy. So you, know, you can't find 30-year fixed rate mortgages for these large multifamily deals, but you can get a 10 or 12-year fixed rate, you know, Fannie or Freddie agency deal that gives you a long running room. So if your business plan is five years and you get to year four and all of a sudden the economy goes down, you still have another six years life on that loan. Where I saw people get in trouble was that all of a sudden the economy tanks, you know, cash flow goes down, maybe cap rates go up, and then the loan comes due. Mm -hmm. And the the borrowers have to go in to the lender at that point. And the lender is like, I know your property was worth 10 million two years ago, but cash flows down, cap rates are up, interest rates are up. You know, now that property is only worth eight million. You got to bring two million dollars more equity to the table. Well, if they don't have it, that's where you know the bank takes over the property. That's where the equity owners lose their money. So, in deals like this, for me, it's you know putting on long-term fixed-rate debt is it gives a comfort factor that you can ride through a downturn. Yeah, absolutely, and that's. That's a strategy that we're basically implementing. If I think I want to hold the property for five years and then sell it, I'm never going to take a five-year you know, loan. I want to have the flexibility. So you know, I like to take seven or 10-year loan. So if something happens after five years, let's say five years ended now. Now is not right. the best time to sell for the most part. Exactly. Yeah, I want to have a loan with a longer term that I can keep my investors in and say, you know what, this is not the right time. Let's keep it for another, you know, six months, 12 months, whatever it is. And I'm not, you know, I saw around me that the deals that were being done, some of them, the loan was due. I was, you know, a deal we just did recently in Marietta, Georgia was a similar, you know, case. So when the loan is due as a seller, you don't have many options. And it puts a lot of pressure on you. The flip side is obviously, you know, if I take a 10-year loan and I'm exiting after five, yeah. prepayment penalty. Pre-payment, yeah, prepayment penalty. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's there. And many times when I'm looking at deals, there are two prices, right? You have free and clear, which is this is how much it's going to cost you if, you know, if you're covering my prepayment penalty, it's usually a few million dollars, you know, higher or loan assumption. So you get into my shoes, you take, you assume the loan. So I don't need to pay, you know, the penalty and you can save a little bit there. But then usually, you know, I saw many loan assumptions deals with 5% interest rate, which is very high because you can get today two and a half, three and a half percent. 
Yeah, it didn't seem like it was high when two years ago when everyone <laughs> rates were, were going up. But now, yeah. yeah, a 5% loan looks high compared to plus or minus 3%. Yeah. Another thing that I think is is important, I saw a graph and I don't have it handy. So I'm going to be you know pulling the numbers out from memory. But Fannie and Freddie are like the largest lenders of large scale multifamily. They probably do 40 or 50% of the lending across the country. And I saw a chart that showed it was either 60-day or 90-day delinquency, okay? And over many, many years. And their 60 or 90-day delinquency was like 35 basis points. I mean, way less, you know, like one-third of a percentage point. That's delinquency, not foreclosure. So Mm -hmm. then they showed. What happened during the Great Recession, 2008 to 2011 or 12? And their delinquency went up, okay? But it was still like 0.9% in the worst recession that country has seen since the Great Depression. And to me, and this is something I talk to my investors about now, is that like to me, that's another huge safety factor is that, you know, look, as us as the syndicators, we're going to put together a pro forma business plan with, you know, a certain amount of debt leverage called LTV, say 75 LTV. Well, then we're going to bring it to a lender. Lender's going to say, yeah, we can get you that, right? But where the rubber meets the road is now all of a sudden Fannie and Freddie, they go and underwrite the deal and they have all this data from years and years and years and years. And they're very smart about how they approve deals. They do not want to have bad deals. So if they come back with 75% leverage or higher, that's just another you know, confirmation that people that have more data, that are smarter, that have been in the business for longer, agree that this property should cash flow and be fine. You know, so that's just another way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that they're actually doing differently than pre-COVID is that they have a new, you know, requirement of COVID reserves. So if you take Freddie or Fannie, you need to put in between nine and 12 months of, you know, in reserves payments for the principal and interest. And that also reduces the risk. Because if anything happens, you're not going to default on a loan. You're not going to be delinquent. There are reserves, you know, that they're keeping aside and they can pay themselves from that reserve. And that was based on, like you said, they have a lot of, you know, data, a lot of resources. And they're looking at all of this. And they said, you know, with Fannie Mae, it's 12 months. With Freddie Mac, it's nine months. It's another layer of kind of protection that, you know, you know what, I'm less likely to default, this is going to be a conservative deal because if something happens in the next nine months, we're not going to lose the property because they hold it. And then after nine months, they release it. And that could be another, you can put it aside in an account. If anything happens and, you know, cash flows a little bit down, you can tap into that resource to pay investors. You can tap into that resource to pay unexpected, you know, capital expenditures, even though you should have some cushion to begin with there. But it's it's just an additional, you know, layer that can be very helpful, even though it also means that you need to raise more money. Right, right, right. So. That's a great point. I mean, 
coming at it from the syndicator perspective, like how many conversations have you had with other syndicators? So, oh, requiring uh. <laughs> all these reserves, right? So that was the first time I've heard somebody position it in a positive way. But yeah, they're doing it because they're like, look, the other alternative could have been that Fannie and Freddie just said, you know what? Until this COVID thing kind of works itself out, we're going to stop lending. Yeah. Right. And that's what a lot of banks do when the economy tanks, they just stop lending. But Fannie and Freddie said, how can we continue to lend, but protect ourselves, you right. know, that we're going to be able to. And so they came up with this solution to require additional reserves. And you know, it is another protection for the deal and for the investors getting into the deal. I hadn't really looked at it that way. I kind of looked at it more <laughs> from the, the, you know, the pain and part of it, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's a lot of it is how you position it in, in your head and you can, you can look at it, you know, in both ways and say, hey, it's additional burden, additional, you know, money we need to raise, you know, another way is to say, you know what, if I need to put a million dollars for reserves, but my CapEx budget is 2 million, I can use some of it because, you know, for reserves, and then I'm going to get it back because I'm not going to use 100% of the CapEx budget. So there's kind of ways, you know, there are different ways of handling this. But yeah, it's different how things, you know, change. And I remember around March or April, there was a lot of fear there with Freddie and oh, Fannie. Absolutely. A lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And as, you know, the months flew by, they actually saw how their borrowers were doing that collections are relatively high with, you know, class A and B more than C and D, you know, low to mid 90s. And they said, okay, sky's not falling. We're okay because if, if there was a mass default, they wouldn't be in a position to even lend. Somebody would have to bail them out, which would be the government. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you mentioned earlier the stimulus checks. And I'm kind of ambivalent about it because, on one hand, I want another package because. That means the more tenants can pay rents. On the other hand, another stimulus package means, you know, that the 10-year treasuries means interest rates are going to be higher and that will impact your returns on new deals. So it's kind of a double-edged, you know, sword. And I think generally speaking, I still do prefer to have another stimulus checks, you know, out there. And I saw how it helped, you know, our properties Mm -hmm. But it's just interesting to see how everything can have a positive and a negative impact and just need, you know, to balance it out. And, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about scaling because we talked about it earlier before we started recording. Sure. And I know your, your main focus is to scale the business, to grow it. You know, what do you do differently these days during COVID to make sure that you're still on the path, you know, to scale your business? As you know, there's a lot of different facets to becoming a multifamily syndicator, right? There's underwriting deals, there's building relationships with brokers, there's winning deals, there's putting together the financing, raising the money, managing the deal afterwards, you know, managing the rehab. So I kind of looked at it after doing the first syndication deal. My first syndication deal was a 76 unit deal about 15, 20 minutes south of Fort Worth. And I looked at all you know, and I was the lead syndicator and have done all those facets. And I partnered with a very experienced guy named Raj Gupta out of Chicago. But I looked at like, what do I like, you know, and of all those facets, where do I want to have my focus? And, you know, I could either try to do it all and hire people and build a company 
or I can focus in certain areas. And the parts that I really enjoy is building relationships and letting more people know they can do this. So I'm 50 years old. I got involved when I was 47. But in those 47 years, I didn't have one person offer me an opportunity to invest. And I, had, I was making great mm. money in different jobs and then when I had my own business. And I would have happily pulled away some money from putting in the stock market and put it into multifamily, but I didn't know about it. So one of the things that's really got me charged up is that I want to let more people know that they can do this. And so that was one of the reasons for starting the podcast, launching a website, and I just want to get out there and let more people know. And then I want to partner with great people that you know, are patient, that don't have to do deals, but are focused on building wealth. And that I feel like not only am I investing in that deal, but I can help bring other people along and help them invest and grow their wealth also. Yeah, that's so, so smart to do. You know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like everyone was, you know, buying right and left and just see those that were patient and disciplined and only got to the right deal. And that kind of, you know, goes back to how we started a conversation and talked about just waiting for the right deal and be disciplined. And listen, you said I'm fortunate enough, you know, that I have other sources of income, but I'm sure it's not only, you know, luck or, you know, just, just happened. You worked hard to get to that place. You worked hard yeah. to have that option. Absolutely. And I, and I think you have to plan for it. You know, you've interviewed a lot of people. I, I've interviewed a number of people on my podcast and successful people, you know, they plan so that they can take the opportunity when it arises. So I was on a trading desk. That's where I started my loan trading career, 2002 to 2006. I was with AB and AMRO in South Florida and I was making really, really good money. And, you know, my wife was like, let's buy the bigger house. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, you know, I just kept socking it away. And I said, you know, at some point this is going to end. And when it does, I don't ever want to work for anybody again. You know, so I just kept banking money, banking money. And, and then eventually the market turned. And when, when it did, you know, I took like six months and got my golf handicap down and, <laughs> and was trying to figure out what to do. But that's when I, I started my own business. But if I didn't bank all that money for those years prior, I wouldn't have been able to do that. You know, I would have had to jump into another job so that I could have paid the mortgage on the bigger house. So, you know, I've heard other people say that, you know, I had one guy say he moved back in with his parents, mm -hmm. you know, and he just banked money. And I heard another person say that, you know, they met a wise person that was older than them. And they told them, Hey, don't buy your first house, buy a fourplex and live in one unit. You know, like, so people took, had sacrifices earlier so that they could take advantage of an opportunity later. That's I think a wonderful insight. And, and I appreciate you sharing that with us because it is, you know, a bit confusing, a bit challenging to get to the place, you know, where you are today, where I, I know a lot of, you know, some of our listeners, you know, they want to get to that place. And the question is, how do you do it? So there's not only one path, but definitely, you know, being disciplined enough and building, you know, that path is, you know, what it's all about.
So I really want to appreciate Darren, you know, you being on the show and we have arrived to the last part. These are five quick lightning round questions that I ask all all my guests. Bring it on. All right. So the first one is what's your favorite hobby? Golf. Golf. Actually, when we get off, yeah, I play golf probably once a week. And actually, when we get off of this, I'm going to be changing up and heading to the golf course. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. All right. And what's the one thing that most people simply, you know, just don't know about you? I was going to say that I was a CPA coming out of school and that I, mm. I started accounting, but you ended up starting it out, you know, <laughs> that, he, that he was a CPA. So now your listeners already know that, but a lot of people that meet me later in life, they don't, don't realize that I started out as a CPA. All right. Is there anything that you wish that you had known when you just started, you know, buying multifamily? Just start, like start like as soon as you can i envy people i have a lot of people that reach out to me on instagram and they're like how do i get started how do i get started you know i'm like just start like you at some point you got to get educated and listen to podcasts read books meet other people network but at some point you know you got to take action you got to actually invest in something i wish i had done it years and years and years ago we didn't talk about on my show or your show, the tax efficiency, but the tax Mm. efficiency is crazy, crazy. When I think back to all the years that I've paid significant, significant tax checks to the government where had I been investing in multifamily, I would have had these tax advantages. It's just a huge, huge multiplier. So start as early as you can. Yep, exactly. And I think actually many people know that the wealthiest people are paying the percentage of tax relevant to their income is much lower than those in the bottom. And this is just astonishing because they have CPAs and, you know, sophisticated people around them that know how to, you know, structure everything. So, you know, they have like, you know, you've mentioned the tax benefits. Investors sometimes don't pay tax on their income or pay very little tax because guess what? There's depreciation for instance. Exactly. And and somebody brought up to me the book Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright mm-hmm. and said, you know, I read it and the first like paragraph was like, hey, there's Americans out there that, you know, think they're paying their fair share. But then the rest of the tax code are all these incentives. Mm-hmm. Yep. The government wants you to invest in these areas. Right. And it like a light bulb went off and I was like, holy cow, like I'm one of those guys. I've been paying huge taxes, but why not look where the government wants me to invest and then take the tax advantage? And that's what I've done. And I'm very happy that I've done it. That's a beautiful way of shedding some light on the tax benefits of real estate. All right. So Darren, if people want to get in touch with you, reach out to you, how can they do that? Best place probably is to my website, darrenbatchelder.com. Uh, it's D-A-R-I-N-B-A-T-C-H-E-L-D-E-R.com. And you could sign up in there and we could start a relationship from that perspective. I'm also on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Instagram is probably the place where I spend more time. So you could send me a DM on Instagram and go from there. But I really appreciate you having me on. It's been so great getting to know you. Listeners, 
you're hooked up with a really great girl here. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. The feeling is definitely mutual. I had a great time getting to know you. And, you know, I know that the listeners got value out of this interview with you. So thank you so much for spending, you know, the last 30, 45 minutes with me. And that's it for today. So guys, I really hope that that was beneficial for you, that you learned something that you're a little bit smarter than you were 30, 40 minutes ago. Be bold, be great and keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.